0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. Um, My patient today is one of my favorite cookbook authors, recipe writers, food personalities, Melissa Clark. Um, You might know her from her New York Times column, A Good Appetite. You might know her from her 40 cookbooks. That's right. She's written 40 cookbooks. Or you might know her from her brand new podcast called Weeknight Kitchen that's produced by The Splendid Table. So she is one of the most prolific people in food, and I am a huge fan of her recipes. I've probably made at least like 10 or 15 of her recipes over time, um, and they're all so, so delicious. And in today's episode, We learn all about her process, how she cooks, why she cooks, um, and it's a great interview. And while I have your attention, I just want to say, hey, I ask you this every week, and it's not a huge ask. I don't want to make you feel guilty. I'm not your Jewish mother. I'm just your lunch therapist. But if you get a chance, go to iTunes, subscribe to the podcast, and then while you're there, just write a little review. It could take you like 30 seconds or 10 seconds just be like, hey, I like this podcast, and post it. It just really helps the podcast gain traction. Um. Otherwise, if you want to see what I'm having for lunch, give me a follow on Instagram at Lunch Therapy. All right. So without further ado, here is my session with Melissa Clark. Back up on here. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for
1: having Being me. Being on my podcast. So you
0: have a podcast now too. I do have
1: a podcast now. Tell uh, me about it. Um, well, wait. How long have you been podcasting? Eight weeks. Oh my gosh. Because I was going to say I don't. Wanna, I haven't listened to yours yet, but uh, I'm very excited.
0: Well, it's it's uh, the early episodes are me sort of finding my groove. Got it.
1: Got and it. And then
0: I kind of came into my own as a lunch therapist.
1: I'm so into that.
0: And now I'm highly sought out by <laughs> by people who want to have their lunches analyzed.
1: I, I I can't wait to get into the lunch, but I want to tell you about my <laughs> My podcast, too, though, because yes. we're doing something kind of weird. Yes, We are. So, you know, I love to do cooking videos, right? Of course. So, I love
0: to watch your cooking videos. And
1: we haven't been in production for those because we're there's a changeover at the time. So I haven't actually produced new ones. We did this one, but we're not doing them regularly like we used to. And I miss that. Okay. So we decided to turn it into a podcast. And you're thinking, how do you do a cooking <laughs> video without the visuals? You, it, It's really amazing. You just listen to the cooking and yes. it's me like yammering on about uh-huh. like the same kind of, you know, all the tricks and all the little tips that I do in the videos. Sure. So I talk my way through it, and I'm cooking. I'm actually in my kitchen cooking. And is that like
0: AMSR? Is that what that's called? Where You, yeah. hear, the, you hear, the, hear those <laughs> yeah, noises oh God, of like exactly. the whisking. You hungry. Yeah, I mean I'm honestly thinking about that, like listening to the noises from Melissa Clark's kitchen would make me so hungry. Yeah,
1: exactly, and that's what we're doing, and it's super fun. So um, yeah, that just launched. It's called Weeknight Kitchen.
0: Well, I am going to subscribe to that immediately. And I'm going to
1: subscribe to Lunch Therapy, so there we go. <laughs> uh,
0: well, Melissa, I think that you 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 are truly the perfect guest to have on Lunch Therapy because, if I'm not mistaken, not only are you a celebrated cookbook author, but your parents are both therapists. They are.
1: They are both therapists. Um, they're both psychiatrists.
0: Psychiatrists. Yes.
1: My mother is also an analyst. My dad wasn't an analyst. So, okay. Because um, I,
0: I practice what's called back porch psychology. <laughs> so none of this is professional. <laughs> garden so
1: parties. So are garden parties. Yeah. So
0: you are going to be able to really, you know, know if I'm like walking. Well, how many
1: years have you been in therapy therapy?
0: Have I gone to therapy? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I've gone to different stages of my life. I, my issue is my therapists always move away. I don't think it's about me, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I've had like two therapists that so be like, I have some news, like sit down, I have to tell you something, like I'm moving. Oh God, twice? Twice, that's so maybe it is total me. total
1: abandonment. Oh <laughs> it is abandonment, God, but awful. maybe
0: about um, five years?
1: Okay, all told.
0: Yeah. And are you in? And do you mind if I ask if you're in therapy? No,
1: I. But I have been in. Th- I mean, well, I'm the daughter of psychiatrists. Yes. How could I not be? Right? It's like the shoemaker's daughter is go barefoot. So, um, <laughs> I absolutely needed therapy, and I was in for different p- times of my life, but probably all told, like 14 years.
0: Oh my goodness! And then
1: I graduated
0: graduated from therapy i did
1: but i've never done lunch therapy so i don't know
0: (laughs) (laughs) but do you really graduate from therapy can you always be in therapy theoretically
1: i know because i think that what happens is you start to hear like you know the voice the therapist voice in your head like that smart voice that tells you that you know like you're thinking crazy thoughts or Mm -hmm. you're just like spinning or you're you're anxious and then you hear that calming voice of like you know you don't have to look at it that way like the way that you're looking at it, where it's like doom and gloom and terrible, right. and then the voice comes in my head of like, you don't have to look at it that way. So I can kind of, I think that's what sanity's called. Like it can kind ah. of like tell my, you know, like talk myself down from the ledge. I guess is what you
0: can it be is. your own therapist,
1: kind of, yeah. And I mean, I always I leave the door open though. Like if I need to go back, I'm going back. Like mm-hmm. I don't, you know. But at this point, yeah, I, I, every time I have um, an anxious moment or a depressed moment, I can deal with it.
0: Well, it's funny because like. I feel like it's the total opposite for you than it was for me because in my family, therapy was taboo. Like, it was a taboo thing to go to therapy. And you
1: grew up in a Jewish family. And the that was, Jewish, that's yeah. not normal.
0: I know. <laughs> no, but, like, my mom's like, oh, I don't need therapy. And You know, it's like, yeah. even though she came on lunch therapy, but that, just, that was just to support me. But, no, but I feel like in your family, it was almost like, for you to be rebellious, you probably, like, were, like, not going to therapy. Right? <laughs>
1: that would be. That would be the rebellion, actually. Like, no. Yeah. But you know what? I was legitimately very, very depressed. So okay. I, I had to do it.
0: Well, I'm very curious. I mean, as we go along, I mean usually we like chit chat for the first time and then we'll find out what you had for lunch but i'm so curious about the nexus between cooking for you and then psychology like your own psychology and where cooking came in for you and
1: yeah well it's huge because you know my parents uh my sister and i always have this joke so my parents had two hobbies when we were growing up Mm -hmm. they loved to cook they Mm -hmm. were julia child disciples they cooked their way through her books and they loved to garden and oh, wow. my sister for a while was studying to be a landscape architect you know mm-hmm. she was into the gardening she has the green thumb and I took the cooking over
0: wow See so we are both sort of mirrors of yes. and products so of, of isn't
1: it amazing how I, like, I think about that with my own daughter too I'm like oh my god you know what are the things that are going to be the positive things and then of course all the negative things that you just can't help
0: well for me it all plays out in restaurants yeah because I used to be mortified by my mother in restaurants because oh, she'd be impatient and she would like glare at the waiter you know and, and like, now, I don't glare. I mean, first of all, like, mine's a reaction formation because, like, I've, I I live my adult life trying not to treat anybody poorly. Not that my mom does, but... Yes. But, like, a lot of it is, like, I'm super kind in restaurants. I'm super, um leave good tips and all this stuff but I still have like a primal thing that kicks in at restaurants if like I'm sitting there and like nobody comes over maybe it's my abandonment issues yeah. <laughs> but it's like the same it's like I feel myself becoming my mother and I'm like no no I'm not going to do it
1: right <laughs> see that's good though because what happens when you're at a table and someone else at the table starts to Mistreat, the, like you know, like oh, impatient. I, mistreat. Does it? Does it just make your?
0: Yes. Yeah. I hate that. Uh,
1: yeah, I, I hate that too.
0: I was once with a relative. I hope they're not listening. And we went out to dinner, and they left a terrible tip, and they treated me, and I was so mortified that like I went back into the restaurant. i done that. And put cash down. I have. I have
1: done that many times. <laughs> yeah. i have, uh, Corrected the tip.
0: Oh really? Yeah. Uh
1: huh. Yeah. I've. I, some you know, once I actually called the restaurant after because there was no graceful way to do it in front of the person that someone was taking me out, and they left a ten percent tip. Oh my god. Ten percent on a perfectly fine meal that yeah. was, you know.
0: People have weird attitudes about tipping. It, I
1: know. And they, said they weren't even European. I mean, it was <laughs> like yeah. they were like French people. You know. No. So I, I actually, called, I couldn't go back. There was no way. So I called the restaurant the next day. Oh. And I was like, hey, you know, this is a long time ago. Wow.
0: That, that's really fo- I used to work through. in re- I, w- yeah.
1: I worked in restaurants. I yeah. was a waitress. I was a cocktail waitress. I was a co-check girl, you know. So you know, so you have sympathy. I Yeah.
0: But okay, before we get into your lunch therapy, I do want to like cover though, like, For people, I mean, I imagine almost everyone listening to this knows who you are, but you are one of the most prolific recipe creators, cookbook authors out there. I mean, how many books have you written?
1: Okay, so I'm I'm up to 43. 43? Three books. But you know what? I just read Martha Stewart's bio the other day, and she's written 90, so I'm like... 90? Oh, god, oh.
0: well, hey. She has a staff. I don't have a staff. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's incredible. And so, what's the most recent book that you have out?
1: The most recent book is called... Well, it's about to come out. It's going to come out in March, and it's called Dinner in French. Oh. And this is something which people don't really know about me. So, my parents' psychiatrists, right? Mm-hmm. Which means back in the 80s, when I was growing up, they had August off. You no, know, psychiatrists don't do this anymore, but it used to be that if you you went if you had a problem in August, were, you were out of luck. All the therapists were on vacation, okay. so they took every August off, and we would house exchange for a house in France. Now imagine before the internet. This is before we would they would type letters on blue onion skin airmail paper,
0: <laughs> oh <my laughs> and God.
1: They would mail it to Europe, and then we would wait and get the reply, and then we would just they would, uh. you couldn't Google the house, you didn't, you couldn't check up on the people. It was just blind trust.
0: That's beautiful. And We would
1: just go and live in this little house in france somewhere different parts and we'd spend the august cooking and eating and then the poor french people would come to 1980s brooklyn which
0: was
1: (laughs) (laughs) not the way it is now
0: no but they must have liked it if they did it summer after summer
1: well different people oh
0: different people it was different houses it was
1: different so yeah we stayed all over the country and it was amazing and that is such so much of a backbone of my cooking Uh and i don't really write about it or talk about it much so this cookbook is my take on french food it's like french food but Definitely with a Brooklyn spin on it. Yeah,
0: I mean your recipes are. I mean, and I'm not just saying this because you are Cause on I'm my podcast. I'm sitting in front of you. No, no, <laughs> but I truly believe this. I mean, like they are truly some of the like most satisfying recipes. There's something about like you did, you did corn muffins the other day, oh, yeah. and it's like somehow like it's like I have to make Melissa Clark's corn muffins. Like I would not after reading that. I'm like I'm not going to make anyone else's because it's going to be the best. Oh,
1: thank you. Yeah,
0: no, you're truly like right, one well, of the hopefully best. Hopefully, you're going to make writers.
1: my my um, Coco van and my uh, oh French yeah, egg, you know.
0: Well, okay. Well, I think let's just just get into it. I mean, yeah, we bantered enough. Let's just find out. What did you have for lunch today?
1: Okay. Do you want the real story or do you want the fake story I was going to give you?
0: This is therapy. We have to have the real story. first let
1: me give you the fake story because I'm going to tell you. This is a
0: fake story? Yeah. Wow. I have to get like my notepad out. This is already. So,
1: okay. So yesterday you emailed me and said you needed a photo of my lunch. And I knew that today was going to be one of those days where there are days when I eat really good lunches and I'm Mm -hmm. at home. And yesterday I had one of those, my favorite lunch. I eat this a lot. It's a bowl full of fruit and berries, and I had pears, and I make my own yogurt. Mm-hmm. I had a ton of the homemade yogurt, and then I put raw almonds on top and honey. And okay. I love this so much. Like, I eat this as often as possible because it makes me feel good. It really is sustaining. It, the almonds and the yogurt are protein. And I swear to God, if I eat this, like, My whole body just feels better. Okay, but today, but I knew I wasn't going to do that today, so I (laughs) took a picture of it. I was like, "Oh, I'll just give it to Adam," and then.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But it's therapy,
1: right? So now, right? So now I'm like, okay, I've got to tell him the truth. So I did actually take a picture of my lunch today.
0: (laughs) Okay, which was what?
1: Um, An apple that I ate while I was running down the street, and I'm starving right now. Starving.
0: Okay, I feel like there's a lot to explore here. There's so much to explore. And I also
1: had... um, So I also brought in some um, baked goods. I'm testing recipes from different baking cookbooks for a project that I do for The Times. It's a big review of baking books. Okay. And um, I had... I think I'm um, working on um, a book that I had, a, something called a Swedish flop, which mm-hmm. is a, a Midwestern dessert with custard and lingonberries, and it's like a yeast bread, and I ate a lot of that at, like, 11. So is that lunch? Is it not lunch? Today
0: what? at 11? Today at 11. Okay. So
1: I ate, like, a ton of that. Right. So I had sort of, so it wasn't like, and then I had the apple. <laughs> so I'm not sure, like, what, is that lunch? What is that? Is that not lunch? Did I not eat lunch? Did I just have, like, a brunch and then a snack?
0: No, I'm. Cur- I have so much to ask you about all this. <laughs> I okay, took a picture
1: of the apple. <laughs>
0: at what point, that of coming here, did you like? Did you really think you were going to say that you ate the berries and yogurt? Like, did you did you really think you were going to sit down and say I had berries and yogurt today? I, you know
1: what? Until I got here, I kind of was, and then when I realized, I was like, oh no, I can't lie to you. <laughs>
0: <Terrible> <laughs> had you ever lie. lied to a therapist before?
1: That's a really good question. I think if I have, I would have corrected it though. Yeah,
0: yeah. because it's a waste of it's time a waste and of money. money. Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, Although I'm not actually paying you.
0: <laughs> oh, I didn't tell you that?
1: <laughs>
0: um, okay, but I think for people who don't know, I was lucky enough, I should say, when I wrote my cookbook uh, where I cooked with all different chefs, you were so kind and generous and invited me to your house. And I got to be in your kitchen with you and cook with you. And I feel like your lifestyle is probably like the dream of of people who love to cook is it's like basically you're in your kitchen yeah. and you're cooking things all day and you're taking notes and maybe for people who don't know can you walk through like a typical day in the life of melissa clark
1: well see that's the thing is that there are the two days so the days that you were there the day that i the days that i love i'm in my house and i'm cooking all day or i'm writing mm-hmm. so if i'm cooking i'm in my kitchen i often have a recipe tester come in and work with me or sometimes i'm alone depending. what time
0: does do you start doing this
1: um so my daughter go, leaves her school at 8. Okay. So right, right at 8. And do you
0: make breakfast for your daughter? Yes. It, okay. I make
1: breakfast for everybody. I make that for me, my my for my husband, and for my daughter. We all have breakfast together.
0: So what was breakfast today?
1: Oh, well, breakfast today was challah toast with um, butter and honey. And um, what else did I have with that? I, and then I had some cookies.
0: Did you make the challah?
1: I did make the challah. Oh,
0: my gosh. Yeah, it was
1: left over from, um, from Rosh Hashanah.
0: Nice. So you so made the toast.
1: I made huh and my daughter and I both had that, and I had, um, did I have anything else with that? I think I might have had a handful of almonds also. Okay. And then I had my, um, my cookies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what kind of cookies?
1: So I'm t- also from stuff I'm testing, I had some apple pear crumb bars,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. I mean, if I could live in anyone's house, it might be yours. It's,
1: it's a good week because we're testing all, testing all of these dessert books. So. Yeah. yeah. But it's not a very helpful day, which is why. So I had had the toast mm-hmm. and the almonds and then cookies and then cake. Okay. So I was like, all right, I need to eat an apple. Or it right. will just implode.
0: And how much of your cooking is savory and how much of it is sweet? Does it generally, like, change week to week? It
1: changes week to week. Okay. Um, okay, so that's the day. So I'm in my house and I'm like – so when I'm in my house and I'm cooking – Then I'll have the berries, like the healthful lunch. Like, Especially if I'm cooking all day and I'm cooking things. It doesn't matter if I'm cooking sweet or savory. I'm tasting a lot of different flavors. Mm
0: -hmm. And where does most of this food go when you make it?
1: Either we eat it or I have a whole network of people I give it to. Nothing gets wasted. Your
0: neighbors love you. My
1: neighbors love me. (laughs)
0: Okay.
1: Um... Yeah, neighbors, babysitters. (laughs) um, I bring a lot of it into work. So then, right, so then the other days, I go into the office, and that's what I did today before I came here. So I went into the office, and I had appointments, so I was Mm -hmm. running around. At the
0: New York Times. Yes. Okay.
1: And... So I brought in the Swedish flop for every, for my colleagues.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Everybody loved it. And then I had to run. We're doing um, a food festival at the Times this weekend.
0: Oh, it's this weekend. It's this weekend. Oh, so I had goodness. to do a
1: rehearsal. So I had to run to Bryant Park. And so that's when I ate my apple on the run. But <laughs> when I'm sitting at my desk, I'll normally either get a salad at the cafeteria or I'll, I, I will just eat a couple of apples. And then, because there's, I just, you know, I can't, it's hard to find the pleasure of eating in the office like I just so I just don't want to waste it you know what I mean I yeah. just want to eat something that will I'll just get through unless it's a cookie I have imp- find pleasure in a cookie
0: important question for you yeah. though, because I feel like people have very strong opinions about this yes what kind of apple Oh, it was so good. <laughs> it was from
1: the farmer's market, and okay. it was one of the first Honey Crisps.
0: Honey Crisps. Those yes. are great.
1: I was so juicy and so crisp and so good.
0: Somebody tweeted the other day that, that some apple was bullshit, but I forgot which one it was. Because oh. some, like, some people have a very strong opinion. Like really? Red Delicious is bullshit, or I don't know. I forget that's what they said, but like people okay, will okay. Have, strong Do have strong opinions. you of... have strong opinions? No, but Honey Crisp is probably my favorite. They're the best. They are the best.
1: Um, there's also something called a... Oh god, it's, I forget the name of it. There's another like Honey Crisp-like thing that they, mm-hmm. another hybrid that they have, and it's also really good.
0: So okay, so in your testing life when you're baking these things and and trying things out is it really just like one bite or two bites and you're like you get what's going on and you can move on to the next
1: usually except when it comes to Swedish flop which apparently I have no <laughs> a lot of that you ate a lot it makes of... it makes a very big recipe um, but you yes no i'm very, I, I tend to be really disciplined i also get full quickly yeah so i eat a lot of little meals That's another thing like i don't i like to sit down and have a nice dinner mm mm-hmm. mhm or a nice lunch. Like, I try to make one meal, like, really complete and lovely. But then the sure. rest of the day, it's really sort of snacking.
0: Now, when you do a recipe, um, like, for example, so these corn muffins. Yes. It's like you have the idea, I'm going to do corn muffins. Right. Like, what is the starting point for you? Like, where do you do you read a bunch of other recipes for corn muffins and then do an amalgamation? Like, do you put it all together? Do you, How do you do it?
1: It depends. I mean, for baking, I usually start there. You know, for savory cooking... I don't have to look at other recipes, really, or sometimes I do, but it's more like you can just kind of go with it Mm -hmm. and put things together. But for baking, you need a formula, right? Right. So I will look at other, and sometimes I'll make a bunch, depending on what it is. I I didn't do it for the corn muffins, but often I will say make 10 corn muffin recipes and pick out the things I like from each one, and Mm -hmm. then I know how to combine them. I'm like, okay, so this one has... um, It has the right richness. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I'll just look at a bunch of, more often than not, I'll just look at a bunch of recipes and then write one. Right. You know, just and then I'll write one that sort of takes the things that I know are going to happen, and then I start from that written recipe, which is a product of having read, say, 15 recipes, and then I'll start from there. So I'll come up with a prototype that I know is probably not going to work, but I can adjust it from that start, that, so that's the starting point, of that So you sense.
0: know that if you have, like, cornmeal and you have flour, that if you use more cornmeal, it's going to be grainier. Exactly. It might have more corn flavor. So right. you play with the ratios and you play with the
1: exactly. ideas.
0: Um, but what does it take for you? I mean, how, what percentage of the recipes that you test or try out make it into the Times or make it into a book, and what percentage are just like, this didn't work out?
1: Oh, most of them work out. I mean, usually because I have to. If there's a deadline. I'm like, right. oh, God. You know, every once in a while, I'll change it up a lot, but My editors like to know what they're getting, so... Uh
0: Uh-huh. Because it seems like a lot of pressure. I mean, talk about, like, a platform where everyone's scrutinizing what you're doing. I mean, like, the New York Times food section is is probably one of the most iconic places to be publishing a recipe in the world. And so it's like, for you to put this out there, it's like, you're going to get letters, you're going to have people on the internet reacting, and so do you just not think about that when you're testing, or...?
1: I know I do think about it all the time. (laughs) I I, I absolutely do. Um, Okay, so one of the things that I... Really hope I can do. Like, with a baking recipe, it's hard because they're going to make the recipe. People tend not to go wild on the baking recipes. Like, they follow the recipes. But for the savory stuff, I have to second guess what they might do mm-hmm. or what they might get wrong. Right. And I'm a big reader of comments and notes on the New York Times okay. site because I learn stuff. I see what people are actually doing, mm-hmm. and it makes me a better recipe writer. So I can kind of, like— one thing, that my, my new thing, is personal responsibility. Like I want people to, because so many times people write, this is not salty enough, this is too salty, this was bland, this is too salty. I get that ten, in the same recipe. Yeah. This is too bland, this is too salty. So I'm trying to write in, a place for people to taste and remind them to do it there and that's where sure. you adjust and it's obvious when you're cooking and if you're a natural cook you do it but yeah. what if you're, a, you're, a starter, you're just starting to cook
0: right then you need to know you need
1: to have a reminder so stuff like that
0: well I mean you taught me a technique when I came over that I use all the time what did I and teach you? you you taught me duck breast with cherries oh right but that technique of searing like a piece of meat in a pan and building up like a brown crust and then adding like balsamic vinegar oh, yeah. and then a fruit and then cooking and making a pan sauce is incredible. So
1: easy, right? Yeah,
0: and that's like so much about as much as it's about the recipe. It's also about the idea behind the recipe, which is like you know meat, you know build up a fond, deglaze, yep. and add fruit. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, And yeah. it's like if you know what you're doing, you can do that, and with we can anything
1: with right? anything. Chicken yeah. breast,
0: I've done it with yep. pork chops, all of that. Okay, Melissa. Well, I feel like we're gonna have to now burrow deeper into your psychological <laughs> world. Yeah, we're kind of. Like we have scared. to really get into that apple. But I think. It often helps to start at the beginning. So, like hey, growing up, your parents were therapists, psychiatrists, yes. is that what you said? Yep. Psychiatrist, And you grew up in New York?
1: Uh-huh. In Brooklyn, yeah. In
0: Brooklyn. And so what was the food life like growing up in your house? So what was the food like?
1: It was very French. It was very <laughs> Julia Child. And Brooklyn, too. Yes. I mean, there was, there was bagels and lox every single Sunday, Okay, which was just the best. Um, we had, you know, Shabbat dinner with my grandma probably twice a month.
0: And what was your family's heritage? Like, where where in the world were they from? Are Originally.
1: Um, you know, pretty straightforward. Um, Eastern European. Um, there was that probably... I mean, they're all murky. Like that area between men, skin, pins. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, but then um, my I know that I have one grandmother came from Vienna, and she was like the posh grandmother. Her, okay. Her family was wealthier.
0: That's where your pastry skills come in. Right? <laughs> it must be, exactly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, and then another... Um, on the, the other side, we have... Um, one grandfather from Romania so those are the definites okay. I don't know where in Romania but so but you know
0: but growing up like your family was cooking the food of sort of of the times like sort of like like reading like Julia Child like that's sort of like exactly what was going on in the culture it wasn't like they were making their hit the food of their ancestors as much as it was like
1: Ashkenazi Jewish food I mean, yeah. yeah for the holidays <laughs> but would. not but not like you know it's not like we were eating you know schmaltz every night right, right.
0: But, but did you love the the food that your family cooked Was it your dad and your mom cooking? They
1: both cooked. Yeah, they were both, you know, because food was this thing that they discovered. So they grew up, my dad grew up kosher. Okay. My mother grew up eating, my grandmother on my mother's side was not the best cook. Mm -hmm. And so she grew up on, I mean, a lot of tuna fish salads with, I mean, really good tuna fish salad, but like she ate a lot of tuna fish salad (laughs) with hard boiled eggs and jello molds. What made it so good? Because it had hard boiled eggs in it. I love a tuna salad with hard boiled eggs and um, chopped pickles.
0: Oh, okay. Or pickle relish. That's interesting. It's good.
1: It's a good tuna salad.
0: I had a step-grandmother who our family wasn't that close to, but she made a really mean egg salad.
1: Ah, uh, yes.
0: <laughs> I feel like that's a thing. Like Jewish grandmothers and like salad, like that kind of like tuna salad, mayonnaise egg salad. salad. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. So do you, do you have specific dishes you remember from your childhood that you yeah. ate?
1: Um, well, so there was a Jewish food, you know, there was the, and for me that tuna salad <clears throat> is definitely part of that. Mm-hmm. Um and kugel was very important. And
0: kugel is like sort of noodles. Yep, and, uh, it's the
1: noodles with the cottage cheese and the raisins and the yeah. eggs. It's like a casserole and crispy on top and uh-huh. soft in the middle. And your,
0: and your your parents would make that?
1: Yeah, for holidays. For
0: holidays. So it sounds like Jewish holiday food was a big part of your childhood. Yeah,
1: exactly. Or for, or for Shabbat, which, you know, and... Um, Me and my grandmother made baked apples, but a very like traditional stuff. And then my parents, so my parents are experimental cooks. And then they, so they learned how to cook from Julia Child. I mean, so everything they made was, um, or, you know, and then like my dad would start, decided he would, start learning how to make um, Chinese food. You know, again, like at home, we, we mm-hmm. bought a wok in that. He probably bought a wok in like 1982. You know, okay. he was like ahead of the curve there. Sure. And, um, and they were just always reading recipes. They used to watch the Galloping Gourmet. Uh-huh. They watched Julia. And so the, so the food in our house was always really, it was really high quality. It was always really fresh. And they were cooking all the time. So if I wanted to keep their attention, one of the best things to do was to cook.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, so, that's a little yeah. nugget. We'll come back to that. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> yeah. that was
1: that's why I do what I do. To
0: get, yeah, just to get their attention growing. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: But was there also a sense of, like, upward mobility in terms of wanting to be cultured, wanting to, I mean, imagine yes. being the children or grandchildren of immigrants. The- yeah,
1: for sure. I mean, when my parents went to France for the first time, and I think it was 1960, maybe, they said. I mm-hmm. was just talking to my mom about this because I was writing the introduction of my cookbook. And um, she said it was just like, I mean, there is plenty of culture in New York, and they went to the museums and they went to concerts and stuff. You know, it was like Jewish intellectual households, that, right. you know. But there's nothing like going to Europe to get a sense of the history, you know. And right. that made a big impression. And going into a museum and just seeing like all of the Monets mm-hmm. there, you know that that was. And the free concerts in the churches, the Gothic churches—all this stuff was so important to my parents, and they really wanted it.
0: And did you grow up also sharing in that enthusiasm? Or
1: oh, I mean, as my mother would tell the story, and I watch my daughter do the same thing. So we'd we'll be driving; we were, dr- were driving through, you know, Provence and the with the mountains and it's or the lavender fields. So my mother would say, "Oh, girls, look out the window! Look out the window!" and and we'd say, oh, it's so beautiful, not looking up from our Archie comics. You know? <laughs> like, we didn't care. We were kids. Yeah, at least it
0: wasn't a phone, which I guess is what it is now. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, same, but the same principle. Yeah. And I, I remember going, and we went to all the museums when I was a kid. My mom would drag us through. My parents would, and we would just wait for them in the gift shop, and we'd have our books, and we'd sit, and we'd read and just wait for them. I mean, so that's so... I remember that so clearly. So though I'm, my daughter's doing it now, mm-hmm. I'm like, all right, you know, but eventually like some of it seeps in. Oh, of course. And there was always the you know, pan of chocolat. Mm-hmm. There was the there was the ice cream, you know, the Bertillon yeah. in Paris. There was the there were the you know, the food was the vibrant part for me.
0: Well it's interesting because I think like for my parents too, they took me to museums, they took me to Broadway shows and stuff. And I think there was this sense that like culture was something that was like out there that was for like the most successful people and we were going to get some of that like oh. we're, we're going to get it too you know and I think I that's, think that's sort of shaped my direction too because it's sort of like well that's the thing my parents valued above all others was culture so like I'm going to try to live my life doing that but it seemed very out there it didn't seem like something you could really do with your life
1: interesting so it was always the other kind of and it was like we want to get a little of that
0: well, it was aspirational yeah. you know i'm turning this about me which is not what a good therapist should do <laughs> yeah
1: but i'm a reporter i can't help it oh
0: yeah how did they even have it uh, okay so you grew up um, so in this climate of like your parents being fascinated with french culture and museums and stuff and so you were in brooklyn yeah and where in brooklyn did you grow up flatbush Flatbush. Yeah. Is that where you live now?
1: No, I live in Prospect Heights. The
0: Prospect Heights. So you grew up, and were you like, what were you like in school? I mean, I can't even imagine. I mean, because I feel like you could like you could have been. If I had to guess, if I was like, what was Melissa Clark like in high school, and I would I would say either you were like very popular or you were very sort of like on your own, sort of like off to the side a little.
1: I was trying to be popular, so I learned that if you <laughs> brought see, see, I do it now with work. I'm like, here, if you uh. are the girl with the. Lunch bag full of brownies, there's yes. always a spot at the cafeteria table for Sure. You. So, so you, brought
0: the, you, you paid your way into I the did. popular group. I totally
1: paid my way. Yeah. I baked brownies, I baked cookies, you know.
0: So when you were cooking as a kid, like how old were you when you started cooking?
1: I made my first cake, which I forgot to put baking soda in, so it was a very <laughs> flat cake okay. at age eight eight yeah
0: and so you came into the kitchen you're like mom dad i want to cook
1: yeah they weren't even around they were seeing patients so i <laughs> okay. went in the kitchen
0: and cooked oh you really did at eight that's very young it
1: was very young yeah
0: you turned the oven on by yourself
1: i think well we had a babysitter so i think she probably turned the oven so on.
0: she turned the oven on and yeah. you were like mixing you you found a recipe somewhere i and you, guess
1: so yeah yeah
0: and it, and it came you didn't put the baking you, so you still remember that you didn't yeah, put the baking because it was a
1: failure but i didn't care we ate it anyway you ate it anyway yeah. and was
0: that was it like sort of just like right out of the gate you're like okay, i love this i'm gonna keep doing it
1: well, okay, so another thing was, so my parents, you know, aside from being Julia Child dis- um, disciples, they were also, you know, in the 80s, remember the whole low-fat thing? And oh, like sure. That? So we, they, they were, our, in terms of desserts, the cupboard was bare. There was mm-hmm. nothing. Was, if I wanted a dessert in my house, mm-hmm. I either took rice cakes, put butter and brown sugar on them and ate and put them in the microwave, I kid you not, <laughs> or I baked it myself. So when I started baking, it was basically to feed my sugar, my big giant sweet tooth, which obviously I still have.
0: And there's something about baking that is sort of self- Soothing, yes. You know, like, when I bake, my, like, I was actually going to make pumpkin bread the other day because I was mm-hmm. about to leave for New York, and I was going to leave it for uh, my dog sitter. Aww. But then I was like, but I want to eat it. So then I was like, it'd be weird to bake the pumpkin bread and then slice a piece off for myself and then just leave him the rest. So I didn't do it at all.
1: Well, you could have just, like, left some slices.
0: Oh, that's a good idea. I should have just done that. <laughs> but, it, but also just that, that feeling you get, like, with the smell of pumpkin wafting through the air, yeah. and, you know, that there's something about baking in particular that I feel like is very, ho- like, makes the home feel better in yes. a way.
1: It does. It makes it smell better. It makes it feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a you know way for people to know that you're appreciating them.
0: So when you were in the in your childhood home and your parents were both working, was was there a lot of time for you to be in the kitchen playing around? After, oh, yeah. after you were eight, yeah, yeah.
1: Especially because you know they would you know when you're a therapist, uh, you're a psychiatrist, your hours go late. Yes. So they were always. You know, from the time I came home from school they were working they were they would come out around yeah. 8 o'clock at night
0: and also I was thinking about what you said about it's a way to get their attention because I imagine being a therapist <coughs> excuse me being a therapist you're giving other people your attention all
1: totally. day So oh, like, I felt in competition with their patients constantly yeah because okay. by the time
0: they get home it's like oh Melissa please don't tell us your problems yeah <laughs> it's like, exactly yeah we've been hearing this all day so pretty it's much so like, here's some food mom and dad and it's like oh that will take yeah yes okay I feel like see, I'm doing a good job I think yeah. I'm, like, I'm getting there <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, so you grew up. um, Did you have any sense when you were younger that you were one day going to become a food professional?
1: No, I didn't, actually. I just thought it would be a hobby. I didn't know that till later. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was also thinking I would go into one of the careers that my parents had, Sort of staked out for me. Like, what did your parents want you to be? Doctor,
0: were- lawyer, Indian chief was the joke growing yeah. up. I know it's not PC to say, <laughs> yeah. but that really was what my mom would say. Like, yeah. You'd be anything you want as long as, as, long as you're a doctor, or a lawyer, or an Indian chief. Right. But, yeah.
1: So but, for me, it was, it was definitely a lawyer. I was yeah. going to be a lawyer. Sure. Uh-huh. I went to
0: law school. I still have the law degree, but I never used it. Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So that's what we were supposed to do. Yeah. So I never went. So I never did that. I mean, for better and for worse. But.
0: Well, I think for better that you yeah. never did. I mean, for my, like, stomach, like, yeah. Um, but so I do know a little bit about where you ended up going. right? Because you went to grad school for writing? Exactly. Okay. But what, so maybe we're missing a step. So you graduated from high school in Brooklyn?
1: Um, I went to Stuyvesant, so it was in Manhattan.
0: In Manhattan. Yeah. And then where did you go to college?
1: Barnard. In Manhattan.
0: Barnard In Manhattan. So you were, you were like a New York City girl. D- yeah, yeah, and
1: then I did a year in France, you know. Oh, my God. There. So it's like I never, I've never lived in a place where I had to drive a car to a mall.
0: Do you know how to drive?
1: I, yes, I do know how to drive. Okay, um, I'm. I have a <laughs> phobia of driving on highways, but I can parallel park in the smallest itty bitty little spot.
0: Uh, okay, I have a phobia of driving on highways, and I have to drive on highways all oh the time in God. LA.
1: That's terrifying. Well, LA at least the highways don't move.
0: Craig and I get into the biggest fights. <laughs> it's actually pretty funny because he believes, as maybe accurate, that it's safer to accelerate as you pull onto a highway. That you're supposed to like accelerate and go with the speed of all the cars. Like that's how you get onto a highway. Like you, you go up I to seven. I thought 70- you were supposed to stop. No, no, well, you know, no, no! You're supposed to like if, a hi- if all the cars are like flying by, you you speed up and you join in and you merge in, right? <gasps> and that's so scary to me that yes. I kind of just like ride the brake. And he's like, "What are you doing? Speed up!" And I'm like, "No, it's too dangerous. You know, it's hard." If you like watched us get onto a highway, you would.
1: I would be with you. I'd be in the <laughs> yeah yeah. That's that makes me crazy. I feel like
0: there should be like school for neurotic Jewish drivers.
1: Okay. I would, I, maybe we should start one.
0: Or an, <laughs> or an Uber. Maybe like an Uber for neurotic Jewish passengers, because I'm so neurotic as a passenger.
1: Oh, as a passenger, I'm actually really good at not, I'm very good at looking out the side windows and not the front. Not the front. I, yeah.
0: So, okay, you went to Barnard, and, and was that there where you studied creative writing? I mean, was that the beginning of the writing of it all?
1: You know, I really didn't study creative writing in Barnard. I studied, um, I did a lot of women's, um, a lot of women's history. Actually, I did early modern women's history. Okay, I loved it. And literature, which you know, I loved, mm-hmm. but I didn't write until after Barnard. Um, and then I took a year off, and I worked at the university, and I was, I worked for the school of social work, mm-hmm. and um, started taking creative writing classes as part of my tuition remission. And that's where I, the writing really. I mean, I always wrote when I was a kid. I always wrote stories, but I didn't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And then after Barnard, I took, I spent a year writing. It's like okay, I. Like this, and then I went and did an MFA at Columbia
0: in fiction writing.
1: Actually, in nonfiction.
0: In nonfiction. Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you write about? Like, what kind of stuff did you write?
1: Oh God, I wrote about food.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <really? laughs>
1: I wrote about the things I was thinking about, and that was food, and that's what started it.
0: So, creative nonfiction, or like an MFA in nonfiction. Exactly. Who were your teachers there? I mean, did you have like luminaries teaching at Columbia then?
1: Um, you know, Oh, you know, actually, what I, I neglected something. I did have a luminary who taught me, and I, this is an important thing, in Stuyvesant. I actually, I, I had Frank McCourt as a teacher.
0: Wow. Yeah. Angela's Ashes. Yes. Yeah.
1: And he, I, I, you know, I wasn't serious about, I mean, I always wrote, like I said, it was something I always did, but I never was serious about it. And I wrote this one story. And he said to me, he goes, you're a writer. He said, you're going to be a writer. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. Oh, I love that. Yeah, but I was anointed by him. I felt, and I, and I. You know, and then I I heard that again. You know, I heard that voice in my head in college. I heard Frank McCourt reminding me.
0: Well, I think that's the greatest gift a teacher can give a student is yeah. to tell you that, like, and, and, and so when, when it comes legitimately, like, because you can tell when teachers are not easily pleased by their other students. They're like, oh, this is bad. You know, and I've, I had that happen to me, too, like, where a teacher pulled me aside and was like, you, you can do this if you want to. And right. it's so meaningful. It's so
1: meaningful. What yeah. do they pull you for? What What was
0: it? Well, in college, I, I was a creative writing major, and the head of the creative writing department was this woman, Lynna Williams, who wrote all these short stories and right. was a published author, and then she just basically, in her feedback at the end of the semester, was like, you can do this if you want to. Like, if you want to be a writer, you can be a writer. And uh, I was just like, that's awesome! Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So when you, so you went to grad school to get your MFA. Right. So when you made that choice to do that, was that something that was, like, obvious to you? Or did it feel like your life was pointing in that direction at that moment?
1: Um, you know, I didn't... I felt like this is something I wanted to do, and I also this is another important thing. I was working at the university, so I had already had a job as in the administration, mm-hmm. and I got tuition remission. Okay. So it was not a big, you know, when Wait, you, I,
0: you Columbia University or yeah, Columbia. okay. Oh, I see. So you got your MFA while working at Columbia.
1: Exactly. So I spent the first year taking just creative writing classes at Columbia, but not part of the program. Got it. And then I enrolled, and then I I applied and enrolled in the MFA program, but mm-hmm. I was still working. I worked through the whole my whole time and so i didn't incur any debt now most mfa candidates it's really expensive
0: oh, totally. Yeah. and if your
1: parents don't pay for it then you uh, then you are incurring a lot of debt and mm-hmm. most of the new mfas have a lot of debt and it's it puts an immense amount of pressure on you i had i didn't have that i had no debt
0: that's amazing it's an,
1: it's amazing
0: so when you're writing now if you're writing a column like you you know like i keep bringing up the corn muffins one because i yeah. just read that yeah, but like yeah. but when you're writing the the prose or the accompanying essay yeah. do you use what you learned at Columbia in your MFA as you're writing?
1: Oh, yeah. I I use it every day for everything. Yeah, for all my writing. You know, it's always like, how do you make this engaging? How do you Mm -hmm. get people to to read beyond the first sentence?
0: What are some of the strategies you remember, some of the things you learned at Columbia that... Yes.
1: Well, I mean, I feel like um, you, know, you you can set a scene. I mean, they're, they're so short. Mm-hmm. And I mean, part of what I need to do in those head notes specifically is I need to give a lot of information that's pretty mm-hmm. technical. And also, I, I need to reassure that there's a lot going on in those pieces. You need to give the information. You need to reassure the cook mm-hmm. that they're not going to mess it up and it's going to be delicious. You need to seduce them yeah. into making it. You know, all of this is going on. But you also, in the best ones that I do, and I don't do this all the time, but when I can, I try to tell a story also.
0: Sure. But... In terms of your voice, like cultivating this voice that is familiar yeah. but authoritative yeah, yeah. and comforting in some way, is it was that something that was always like that? Was your was your nonfiction voice the same? If I read your Columbia pieces, would they read similarly?
1: I mean, don't you think you have different voices for different pieces of types of writing?
0: I think when you're younger, you tend to want to be edgier, right? Like you, t- I mean, you tend to want to just like kind of come out of the gate. Like I, I just remember like doing things that if I looked at it now, I'd be so embarrassed to look really? at what I wrote. Were you purple? Not purple, no, not purple, but just angry, and just, like, I would write, you know, just things with, like kids killing their parents. I mean, just like wild things. I mean, that's its own therapy session. Wow. <laughs> but I know, just like things that were really out there. I mean, I wrote a play in grad school called Sperm Head about a gay couple that was trying to con- get a, have a surrogate, but they couldn't afford it. So they went to this, like, witch doctor who put their sperm in the microwave <laughs> and produced a baby <laughs> that had a flagella for a head. Like, oh, it was insane. God. Like, I wrote that. And I was like, well, if I look back on that now. I'm like, what was I thinking? You know, but it's that's like... kind of awesome. Oh, I mean, yeah. Maybe I'll keep working on it. I think <laughs> <you> should, actually. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> But, but actually. you know, it's like, I just think I wrote things that were just unrecognizable now from the things that I write today. But it sounds like from your reaction it sounds like you were pretty consistent across the board, right?
1: Um It's a good question. Yes, even the fiction I did was realistic fiction. Like mm-hmm. I never did anything that was another like stylistically completely different.
0: Who are your favorite writers who are or were I mean uh, who were your influences?
1: I mean, I read, I read a lot, of, and I still do, I read a lot of 19th century. Like, okay. that's my sweet spot.
0: Like Edith Wharton. I'm, uh,
1: yes, Edith Wharton's big for me. Um, I'm slowly working my way through Proust. Amazing. I'm to, I'm about, I'm a little more than halfway. I'm up to, I just finished Sodom and Gomorrah, okay. which is book four out of the seven. So you
0: got to, like, Madeline already.
1: Yeah, Madeline's in the first book. <laughs> yeah, that's all I read. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's really funny because I just, <laughs> so, you know, you read the Madeline and then you think, oh, Proust, there's going to be so much... Food in there because the Madeleine passage is so evocative and amazing. That's pretty much it. That's life. it. I can tell you like a thousand pages in. <laughs> yeah. Like it, I mean, there's and I actually had this really interesting exchange with a Proust scholar because I'd written something about how it's like you know if Proust would just if he could just spend a little more time <laughs> on the food because he gets really he goes deep into obviously the social customs but also fashion. Uh-huh. He's obsessed with fashion and he you learn so much. Like why doesn't he go back to, you know, <laughs> to food and you know this pre scholar wrote to me She's like oh, there's lots of food in there I'm like yes but you're except you're, you're talking about like seven things in the course of a thousand pages <laughs> yeah. you know it's the you think exceptions do more. The yeah. there's um, lots, of th-
0: lots of things you could dunk into your tea besides madeleines too he could be dunking like cookies I
1: mean he goes to these sumptuous dinners all the time and tells you what everybody wears and not what they ate <laughs> I mean seriously
0: can I ask you though like, I read the first hundred pages of Swan's Way yeah. and I was young I was like maybe you know like in yes, my 20s yes. and I think I don't think I was ready for it
1: yes exactly
0: but what can you Thank you for people who like hear Proust, I mean, Proust is brought up all the time. But can you make the case for like why we should read? Okay, Proust? that's
1: so funny because I started. I read Proust also in my twenties. I read. Yeah. I started reading Proust in college, and I said, "Oh my God, I feel like I'm on a train riding backwards. I can't do this." <laughs> I and of course, that's what the whole book is about: remembrance of things fast right? Okay. But I, I felt very strongly that I was too young to read this. I was like, yes. "Nope, nope, don't want to be reading this." So I put it down, and then I picked it up again when I turned forty.
0: Mm-hmm. oh like,
1: Okay. So well, I just turned forty. So, so yeah. So maybe now is the time.
0: Now is the time. I mean, it's. It feels very dense.
1: It's very dense. Yeah. Um, okay. Why is it so great to read? Because first of all, it's very psychological. Okay. So, so you know, and you really you learn about. I mean, reading Proust makes me understand humanity better. It makes me understand myself better. Mm-hmm. It makes me understand his world, but also by extension our world better, because people don't change. And every time I can read a book that has these universal truths. But just so many of them, and there's such richness there. I feel like I see the world in a deeper way. Mm-hmm. And um, and then, I, yeah, I am interested in the fashion, and there's lots of sex, too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> was he gay? He was gay, right? He was right?
1: gay, although it's funny, because he doesn't say in the book that he's gay. So yeah. he's all of the, um, you know, the sexes with this woman named Albertine, but, you know. Spoiler and, alert.
0: Well, yeah, but you know that, <laughs> I mean,
1: but then you're, you know, then... I, I, when you read his biography, you know, yeah. you realize. But it's, and the way that he treats homosexuality in the book is really interesting, written by a gay man who's pretending not to be a gay man in his character. So interesting.
0: Okay, I'm going to read it. It's really good. Yeah. So, okay, so I think we probably should skip ahead a little bit now to the moment where you became a food writer, right? I mean, like, was that an easy leap from Columbia MFA to food writing, or what, what was the in-between there?
1: Um, so I was a caterer. Okay. So um, I... So w- I worked a lot of jobs when I was at Columbia because, like I said, I didn't want to have any debt. Mm-hmm. I was really afraid of debt because I didn't want to have to go to law school to pay right. it off, you know. And I wanted to be able to live in New York by myself. So I I worked at the university, but I also had a catering company.
0: What did you do at the university when you worked there?
1: Um, so I, the first year I was at a, an administrative assistant for the um, uh, Ph.D. in social work for the social work school. Okay. Uh, but the Ph.D. program, not the um, um, the master's program. So – I I don't know what I did I I, I God knows what I did but I, I somehow busied myself and I got remission and then I got a job at the Institute for Research on Women and Gender which at that point was a very small fringe part of the university mm-hmm. now it's huge okay and um, and again this was Columbia not Barnard so mm-hmm. you know the Gender Institute was you know it's it it was a new thing in yep. the when I was there um, and so I spent two years working as a secretary for that program. And then I got an assistantship, a research assistantship there, a fellow. And so I became a fellow and I got my tuition. But at the same time I had a catering company. Yeah, tell
0: us about that. <laughs> and, <laughs> that? I,
1: and it was like all the professors, every dissertation um, you know, party, every like little professorial coffee or you know, they could either go to Mama Joy's which is the deli down the street and mm-hmm. order their, you know, dry cookies and um, their hummus, or they could come to me. And I was fancy, and I would make, I would make like, smoked trout mousse.
0: Now, were you—at what point did you realize you had talent as a cook? Like, when did that become apparent to you, that you were good at this?
1: I, you know, I just assumed that everybody was. I didn't assume <laughs> I was better than anyone else. But, but
0: like, to have a catering—I mean, like, that takes some chutzpah to be like, okay, I'm going to, like, charge people money for my food. I mean, you must have— no, well, you no, you go. Were... You
1: go to one catered event from Mama Joy's. Yeah, and you're like, I could do better. <laughs> you could do better.
0: So, okay. So you catered these events, but where where were you cooking all this food? Did you have an apartment? Did I you... had
1: a teeny weeny little apartment, and I cooked it in my teeny weeny little kitchen. Near Columbia. Yep.
0: Okay. It was
1: um at 123rd and Broadway, La Salle and Broadway. Okay. And um yeah, it was a really small kitchen, a little galley kitchen, and I would put stuff out all over the living room. Oh my gosh. Um and then when I got bigger jobs, um eventually I partnered with somebody whose name. Last name was Cook, as a matter of fact. It was oh, kind of funny. Okay, um, and he had a loft in Chelsea, and so then we would do bigger parties and through his loft. Like I do, we did a wedding once.
0: Oh, my gosh. That was big. That and were you good at the economics of it? Like, were you good at saying, okay, like, this is how much we're getting paid to do this, <laughs> and then this is how much we can spend so we, like, make money? Because <laughs> that, that's where I would do terribly. Yeah,
1: no, not so much. Yeah. I I mean, I, I, I always made more than I spent, but not much. You know, it was certainly if you added up the the hours. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at the end, I always catering is like schlepping. Yes, you know? totally. It's just schlepping.
0: Okay, so how did the catering transition into food writing
1: uh, so I'm well so I'm b- doing the MFA so I'm creative writing Yeah, I'm cooking I'm catering and then I'm writing about food obsessively because that's the thing I'm thinking about and you know food is the metaphor for everything that I write you know right. not writing I'm writing about relationships I'm writing about boyfriends I'm writing about whatever I'm writing about like I wrote this. Remember, my mom had breast cancer at the time, and I remember I wrote this thing, and I I wrote a lot about chicken noodle soup, you know, and it was mm-hmm. just the way I told my story. So then it's like, Bing, 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 Bing. I should actually do this. I read M.F.K. Fisher like everybody does. Sure,
0: you have to read her at yeah. some point. And so, did you? What was your first food writing gig? Like, what was the first oh, gosh, job? So I was so. Are you cold, cold by the way? I am freezing. Do you right. want my jacket? No, it's okay. Are you sure? Because I have my jacket. Oh, you have a jacket? I okay, I'm just saying she mind. looked very cold. You know, I, and, I, right? Because I'm
1: sitting here. Hud- shivering <laughs> you just <and laughs> seemed like she was
0: shivering. Yeah. <laughs> I'm shivering. Right, yeah. There you. Yeah, now you have a jacket on. She's much better.
1: Okay. Um, So I, it it was a, this okay. Matt, take yourself back to 1995. Mm -hmm. What was happening in 1995? It was the beginning of that thing called the internet. Okay. And I just said I was a food writer, and so people paid me money to provide content for brand new websites. Like what? Like okay, so Hearst magazines. Mm -hmm. Hearst had they had I forget what it was called, but it was like a food website. It might have even been called Epicurus, actually, but it wasn't Epicurus or something or the Epicurean, maybe. And they would pay me a dollar a word, Adam.
0: Okay. In
1: 1995, a dollar $1 a word. Okay. You don't get that now. No, they would let me write 900
0: words. Wow. So you you got in I, early. I got in
1: early, and I, the pay was it, it was good. I could have, you know, I could I could live in New York. Do
0: you remember your first published recipe?
1: Yes. Well, no, I don't remember my first published recipe, but I remember my first published recipe in the New York Times. Which was what? So I started writing for the Times. Yeah, and and I I want to
0: hear about that, too. Like, how did that job come about?
1: um, Right place at the right time. My friend Anna worked for this guy who used to be at the science section, Rick Flass, and then he became the dining editor, and he left, and he came back, and he tried to get Anna to work for him, but she was in India with her sister-in-law, so I got the job. Gotcha, there you go. That's usually how it happens. That's how most
0: jobs happen. Exactly.
1: Um, So, um, uh, but I was writing, I was doing, you know, food trend stories. At the beginning, for the Times, I was doing these little actual Mm Q&As. People would write letters to the Times. They'd write letters, and I would answer them in print. Dear New York Times, how do you whip egg whites? And I, would write, it was called The Food Chain, and I, that was my first column. Okay. <laughs> column. You know, I, would do, I was in charge of that. I got like 25 bucks a column or something. Wow. And, um, yeah, and I did that for a while. And then I remember the exact – the reason I remember this is because it was right before September 11th. Like mm. it might have been September 8th or something. Okay. Or, And um, I published a recipe for a borscht, for a blender borscht with cooked beets. And, you know, I just remember it because I'm like, it makes me want to cry right now because, you know, September 11th was so intense, like living in New York at that time. And, you know, I I can't think about borscht (laughs) without thinking about. Maybe because it's red and bloody, and anyway, sorry to get macabre here, but no, no, it's, it's very emotional for me. So this first recipe was yeah. something that happened at this intense time. It's just why I remember it so clearly. Well,
0: also because it's sort of like that that moment in time too is like September and New York is still hot, yes. so you're having like you're, you're transitioning yeah. into fall, and it's like beets, and it's sort of like, like that that soup is sort of like what you would eat around that time anyway you know
1: yeah and it was the time back then it was like you know how you can buy the beets that are already cooked in the like Mm -hmm. the vacuum packed it was a new product okay so it was just coming onto the market in New York
0: I see so that was the way into the story that was the way
1: into the story so it was like a little piece it was very small the little piece like hey you can get these beets and here's something to do with them
0: so Wow, I mean, I don't want to drag you through this emotional terrain, but it also feels like the excitement of having your first recipe totally. published in the New York Times. Oh, and then, I didn't, yeah, I mean. And then three days later. Yeah, you
1: know. or even the next, I mean, it was right, I actually don't remember the date, but it was like right, right then. It was like, oh, my God. But did you happened? continue
0: to publish after that? I mean, were you consist- consistently writing for the Times in the food section? I was consistently
1: writing for the Times. I didn't, my, so, I, and I would write recipes every once in a while, but my column, which is, you know, Where I really started writing recipes. A good appetite. Yeah, a good appetite. Started in two thousand seven.
0: Okay, and so I have to ask you. Like, um, this is actually flying by. I'm realizing, like, oh my god, like we have like very little time left. I have so much to ask you, but like, in terms of creativity, because I think we, you know, a lot of people listening to this work in creative fields, and it's so hard to sometimes like motivate and come up with new things. But your your output is so high. I'm just curious, like, what are your techniques to stay creative and to keep? yourself going and come up with new books, new ideas, new podcasts, new recipes?
1: You know, people always ask you that. I just feel like, well, doesn't everybody just always think about those kinds of things all the time? (laughs) You know, I mean, like I said earlier, I see my lens for the world is food, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm always inspired. I'm like, I can look at anything and get inspired. And I'm I'm hungry a lot, too. So, you know, Uh, and and it's just I'm always thinking about it. So, you know, it's funny, I interviewed Mark Bittman the uh-huh. other day.
0: Also very prolific.
1: Yes, and I and he said, you know, I knew it was time to give up my column when they said to me, uh, you know, can you do a roast chicken, another roast chicken recipe? And I rolled my eyes. <laughs> and, thought, uh, you know, and he's like, okay, I realized it was, I was done. Yes. And as he was speaking the words roast chicken, I was like, oh my God, I'm so hungry, and I want to make roast chicken, and this is what I want to do with it. And what yeah. if we put turmeric in it and, right. and make the skin really golden? With the- mm-hmm. And okay. so it just doesn't stop.
0: But I have to ask. I think I'm too timid to claim a recipe as my own. Like you know, I've been um, cooking yes, now for fifteen yeah. fifteen years and I cook all the time now and I come up with things and put them on Instagram yeah. and stuff. But I would be very nervous to say to the New York Times, here is a recipe. For, like, I like to to declare it. You know, like what's something I like. I make oatmeal every morning. and I put like toasted coconut, toasted almonds, dates, mm-hmm. and dried cherries in yeah. with my toasted oatmeal. And I feel like it's an Adam Roberts recipe. But for me to publish that, I feel like oh my god, I'd be so nervous because like what if that already exists? Like what if somebody else does? We this? need to
1: do recipe therapy with you. Oh,
0: I know. But like, do you get nervous? Like how? Like it's, I guess it's sort of like writing a song, like the George Harrison writing like "My Sweet Lord" mm-hmm. and then realizing later like oh wait, th- that's the same as um he, what's that? He's yeah. so fun. You know, so it's so like fine, a lawsuit. Yeah. Like, a Do you have those moments where you're like, I have a great novel idea for a recipe, and then you go on and Google and you're like, oh, wait, this already exists? Or? No,
1: because I go in assuming it already exists.
0: Okay. So how do you find out? That, do you just f- make sure it doesn't exist? No,
1: it doesn't matter. I mean, because you can't, first of all, you, I mean, forget about copyright law. I'm assuming everything I am doing is building on something else anyway. I don't sure. assume I... You know, the, I think the only really new thing I did that I hadn't seen before, and maybe someone had done it, but I really knew was the um, splayed chicken. Okay. Like, I can't... Like, where you cut the skin from the chicken legs and you kind of crack the bones and you spread the chicken legs you open. Put and you
0: put it into a hot skillet. You
1: put it a hot skillet. I'd never seen I that. I had
0: too. a podcast guest who's like, that's her favorite recipe, Marquita Robinson. Yeah. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, she talked about it. She talked about that. The, the reference to Yeah, I mean, you're...
1: But that's the only... But that's pretty much it. Everything else I've done, I've put my. Sp- been on it right. but I don't know that I would never say oh this is a Melissa Clark recipe I mean it is but what that doesn't have much meaning I guess is what I'm saying and right. so
0: does if, the times care about that though like do they worry about infringement or like, no
1: because you can't copyright a recipe oh
0: you can't copyright a recipe I always forget about that yeah. Right,
1: as long as you change one thing in it yeah and I mean of course I'm changing a million I mean I think, you know, people talk about this a lot. Obviously, if I'm taking something directly from someone else and it's inspiring me in a way that's very direct, Mm -hmm. I want to give credit. Of course I want to give credit. It's what we're all about. Mm -hmm. Um, And I never want to, but like I said, I just don't, believe that I've really created something new mm-hmm. except for that maybe one
0: well I just think of you as almost like a mentor like it's not about it's interesting that you studied creative writing because it's a, it really is to me about your voice it's about like Melissa Clark says this is what to do so I'm going to do this it's like it's not if it was just the instructions in and of themselves it wouldn't have any meaning to me you know it's like it's the fact that it's you telling us what to do if that makes sense yeah
1: people trust me which is kind of you know nice <laughs> yeah
0: well, I'm trying to bring it full circle a little bit because I was thinking about what you said about getting your parents' attention and do you think there's any connection between what you do for a living and like getting the attention of the world through cooking like i mean you were trying to get your, your parents' attention right, through cooking right. but now you're getting attention on a much larger scale is that is there any do you feel that connection or
1: I love it because i mean i guess i do love the attention that you know I, but <laughs> i i love i love it when people say to me I made this thing that you cooked and whatever; and it was delicious because I love being able to help people feed their families. Like I just want, like I mean, really, I'm just like a, I'm like my grandmother. I know. I mean, I just want to feed everybody. I just and I can't feed everybody because right. you know, that would just be too hard. But I can help people feed everybody, and it's just like I just want people to eat delicious food and. Th- if I can write it down and then it works, and then, you know, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But that is the most gratifying. It is as gratifying to me as giving someone a cookie like I did in high school. uh uh-huh. It's like giving them a recipe. And
0: it feels like there's a people-pleasing element. Totally to, yeah. people-pleasing. I'm yeah. a people-pleaser, too. I feel like a lot of cooks are yes, people-pleasers. Yes, we are because we,
1: that's why we that's what, you know, we're like, we save me a seat at the lunch table? i bring the cookies. Yes. Oh, it's the same exact thing. Like, hey, you know, I'm going to... Give you a recipe for a cookie.
0: But it's the job of therapy to tell you that you don't need the cookies, Melissa. You're good enough to sit at the table anyway. <sighs> <laughs> I, I guess I,
1: th- I believe you at this point. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like that's what a therapist would say. Um, well, I, I was going to ask though, in terms of feedback, like in terms of putting these things out there and then having a response, like how yeah. do you take it if if there's negative comments or if people don't like your recipe? I mean, does that, does that affect you or do you let it roll right off of you?
1: No, I can't let anything roll off of me. I take it all in, but I, you know, I try to make, I try to use it as. Teaching moments, like mm-hmm. I try to, like I said, I'm always looking to make my recipe writing better, tighter, more sensitive. So I try to, you know, it's like Alcoholics Anonymous, right? Take what you want and leave the rest. So mm-hmm. I try to do that with the comments. I try really hard to leave the stuff that's just pure negative.
0: Right, right. I,
1: mean, and I But I do take it in, but I try not to take it in for very long. Like I... I'm not at the point. I just don't have that kind of confidence where I can just let it roll off. Yeah, like it has to. Eventually, I can brush it off or like get it off. But can it I sticks ask for
0: you? I mean, I'm curious because this just popped into my head, and I th- honestly didn't think about this before coming in. But there was the pea guacamole. Oh, uh, the yeah, <laughs> the
1: I mean, which peek-a-mole. I remember
0: like that like went viral. I was like, yeah, the guacamole. Sh- but I mean, I I, I I didn't even think like before interviewing you. I was, I didn't like come yeah. up with that, but like now I'm like, oh, but that that was like a big um Okay, thing. so <laughs> this
1: is actually interesting. So I yeah. went into my, I didn't even know I had a Wikipedia page, but apparently someone wrote me a Wikipedia page, and okay. I went in to look at it, and it said, so it, it talked about the pea guacamole, and it said that it was a recipe that I had written, invented for the Times, and it wasn't my recipe, and that's the thing. I reported on it. It was Jean-Georges von oh, recipe. yeah,
0: but it went viral, right? It I, went
1: viral, and I mean... It's kind of thrilling. I mean, I love the fact that you had, you know, George Bush and President Obama <laughs> both weighing on it <laughs> on Twitter. Like, incredible. do I love that? I love that. Did yeah. they say negative things about it? Yeah, but, you know, it wasn't my recipe.
0: So, but in terms of, like, how it affected you, did, when this was all happening, I mean, I've had this happen when, like, when I had my food blog, like, where I'd write something and then it would go viral and people would be a backlash and it's like, you know, and, and, and I would be, like, up all night, like, quivering, like, oh, my God. Oh, really?
1: What, a- what was the worst thing that ever happened?
0: Oh, God. Um... I'll have to think about it. I mean, I just feel like I would write something... Um Oh, like okay. I wrote like a post like only a jerk would eat at Le Cirque. Oh, that's cute. And then, but it was like yeah, it was like I thought music. it was being edgy and, so, yeah. and then, But then there was like a backlash like so, who does he think he is? And then, I, and then I ran into Mauro Maccioni at a party. Like, oh god! But I mean, just like you know, I, I, just like these things take on a life of their own. Sometimes you put it out there and then it just like grows and grows and goes crazy. But with that, that felt like that reached proportions that even the most ambitious food writer could never expect the two presidents of the United States to like weigh in on their column. Okay. But it seems like you took it in stride, right?
1: I think it's because it wasn't my recipe. It was a lot easier. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah.
0: If it had been, it would have felt differently. I think
1: it would have felt differently. Yeah, that's interesting. Would it have felt differently? Um, I mean, when it first happened, I remember I was actually at an orthopedic o- orthopedist office, because yeah. of my ankle, was bothering me. And I remember like looking at my phone while I was waiting in the waiting room, and I was like, <gasps> it was horrifying. And oh, just, yeah. And then, you know, my boss was so happy. He
0: <laughs> was like, no, oh, it's so great. That is hard. great. I mean, ultimately, it was great. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately,
1: but the, yes, the initial reaction was that I was horrified.
0: Okay. Well, it makes me think about, like, I talked about um, when David Leibovitz was here earlier, uh, I talked about projection screens, how like we project onto things, like, what's going on with us internally. And it felt like that pea guacamole was, like, a projection screen for people. Like, they projected onto it yes. their own cultural identity. Like, whatever they were feeling, whatever anger they had about politics, it was, like, somehow that took, took on a weight that it truly maybe didn't deserve. Well,
1: you know, it also, if you think about it, it was, like, the beginning of the awareness of cultural appropriation for recipes, right? Right. It was right at the beginning of that. And so, you know, you had this feeling of, like, who are these people taking our recipes and mm-hmm. what are they doing to them? Sure. You know, culturally, you know, for Mexicans, like, of course you did. And right. so that, w- and it wasn't, it was just right at that moment. So there was a, hu- a higher level of consciousness for that kind of thing and less of a tolerance for it. So that recipe hit that.
0: And also the like hunger for a story on the internet. It's like people want something to go, you know, it's like, yeah. ooh, look, this is something to tweet about. And um, well, Melissa, we're nearing the end of the podcast. How do you feel about it so far?
1: I feel good. I okay. feel like I, I feel like this is a good therapy session. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I feel like I learned a lot about you. But I always end the interview. I start with, what did you have for breakfast? I'm sorry, what did you have for lunch? <laughs> Although I did learn your breakfast. But what are you going to have for dinner tonight?
1: Oh, I'm so excited for t- dinner tonight. So yeah. my husband's been away for two weeks and he's coming home. Ooh, okay. I know. So I'm gonna make um, I'm gonna make one of our favorite meals. It's something I make a lot. It's pasta with anchovies and garlic. Yeah, tons of anchovies, tons of garlic, red chili flakes, um, and then I have a bunch of Swiss chard, mm-hmm. and so I'm going to saute that on the side, so we'll have the, you know, the pasta will be pretty simple, then we'll have the, the sauteed Swiss chard, and this is, like I said, a meal we actually eat a lot, um, lemon zest in there, and a big salad, and a ball of wine, and I can't wait.
0: White or Red. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. So with the pasta, I'm actually like getting really hungry hearing about this. So do you take like butter, olive oil? Like how Both do you s-
1: butter and olive oil? So um, I chop the garlic and the anchovies together on the cut- okay. cutting board to get them into like this paste. And how it. many
0: like cloves of garlic and how many anchovies would you say?
1: Probably like three cloves of garlic, and I just use a tin of anchovies. A whole tin. It's just a little tin, but yeah.
0: A tin. Oh. Yeah. No, I think that's great. I you mean, it makes it taste so it's good. Like
1: eight, eight to ten anchovies.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So you put that and in, then, and
1: mm-hmm. then you sauté them in butter and garlic okay. together. How much butter? I don't measure. A lot.
0: A lot of... I know. I mean, I, this yeah. is good for people to know if they're going to do this. Yeah.
1: Probably like half... No, for the two of us, probably like two tablespoons of butter and then like two tablespoons of olive oil. Okay. And um, lemon zest. And then I will chop up um, a bunch of herbs from my deck. You know, a combination of... You know, thyme, basil, chives, and just chop them up really fine, and also sauté them at the same time.
0: Do you like when you just said that? I like was trying to like taste the flavor in my head of like thyme and basil and chives. Too. Like, do you do you feel like your brain like when you hear ingredients that you can like imagine the taste in your in your head when you yeah, hear them? Yeah, of course. Yeah, because that, that's a combination. For some reason, like thyme and basil, I don't think I've had those two herbs together. Because I think of like basil as like a summer herb, and I think of thyme as like a woodsy, like winter herb. You know
1: what? It's lemon thyme. Lemon. So readjust time. your readjust. Okay. You can see like a little brighter light. A brighter
0: yeah, but it's so fascinating because yeah. it's like that skill set which I think I barely have. Like I feel like must be very active in you to like know what something's going to taste right, like. Wait, and
1: I wouldn't put rosemary in there.
0: You wouldn't put rosemary. I
1: wouldn't put rosemary. Okay, so
0: lemon thyme with basil and thyme. So still like summery, bright. Yeah, exactly. Okay,
1: and um, lots of black pepper, and then you know chili flakes. Uh Really good, these Sicilian chili flakes. Yeah. And, and what kind of, which
0: shape pasta are we using here?
1: We're probably using I don't know what I have, but some like I like like a short pasta for this more okay. than a, a long pasta. Generally I like a short pasta. Like a you know, um a rigatoni's good, calamaretti is good with mm. the big ones. Okay. Um or sometimes I'll use the what are those called? The strapetti?
0: Okay, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Or
1: what are the ones that are like the f- fluffy ones that look like little bells? Um
0: Oh, like bells. Kind of or like, uh, it's it like a pop quiz, I don't know. I don't know. They're like <laughs> yeah. little like I forget
1: the cavatelli. yeah. Cavitali- no, Cavatelli?
0: No, no, I don't think Cavatelli looks like bells. I don't. Cavatelli like look, looks like worms. A no, bit? not
1: Cavatelli. Then um, I forget. Okay. Anyway, and, <laughs> so you'll uh, use that. I use that,
0: and um, and so you'll toss that all together, yep. and then the Swiss chard is on the side.
1: So the Swiss chard, yes. So okay. this is a little complicated, but what I like to do is. Um, I, when I cook my pasta, I put my Swiss chard in a col- in a not a colander, a um, strainer. Throw it and just like dunk it in the so I blanch it in the salted pasta wa- pasta water. Okay. And so after I have sautéed that goop, the anchovy goop in the pan, uh-huh. then I add the pasta. I do that, and then I have the Swiss chard is already blanched, kind okay. of. Sure. And so I chop it up and then throw it in that same pan, and it gets the last bits of the.
0: I see. So you don't stir it in with the pasta though.
1: Right. I do it after and. um and then I kind of have it on the side because I like the purity. I don't want my Swiss chard in the pasta. I want it on the side of the pasta.
0: Okay. Well, it's interesting. tourney it's like Oh, got it. And will there be dessert too, or is it just the savory food?
1: Um, there's you... some cookies around. Maybe we'll eat them.
0: But in terms of your day, like now that I have like a fuller picture, it feels like it's like breakfast, like a light, very, very light lunch, yes. and then dinner.
1: Yes, that's what we do. Like I said, one kind of meal a day.
0: Okay. Because, yeah, because... One it, if, big,
1: you know, big meal.
0: If it wasn't the apple, which I'm so glad you told the truth about, <laughs> it would have been, but it still would have been a very light lunch. It would have been
1: the bowl of berries. Bowl of
0: berries, which is what I have for breakfast very often with yogurt and toasted almonds. Yeah, it's delicious. Be. Yeah, but that's very light. I feel like that's a theme, actually, for a lot of food people that I've had on the podcast, where it's like a very light lunch. Yes. And then you get to have a big dinner.
1: Right, exactly. Although,
0: nutritionally, isn't it better to have a bigger lunch and a lighter dinner? Yes.
1: Yeah, so that's why sometimes I will do that Um, you know, it depends on, you know, where. Uh, but s- sometimes if my husband and I are home, I'll make a big lunch mm-hmm. or we'll go out for lunch. But, you know, it's harder. I mean, really, it's like when you want to drink the wine, you don't want to drink the wine at lunch.
0: No. So although you got to drink can.
1: the wine at dinner. Although you can still, with a light dinner for us, is we'll open the wine and then we'll have just a big salad. Oh. And then that'll be like our light dinner. But it's something we can do together. We always light the candles. Oh We Always do. sit down at the dining table and we always like the candles. And is
0: this with your daughter too? Yep. And now is she a fan of all your food? I mean does she no, really we
1: no, we make her an entirely separate meal. So You do? Don't hate on me. Yeah.
0: That's like a whole parenting thing, right? It's like such a, bit- a
1: bad thing to do. She eats the same salad. We eat we all eat salad together. She We'll eat like the pasta. I'll take some aside from her and I have pesto I made. I'll just throw that on. Like, she doesn't like the anchovies.
0: Oh, okay. I get that. Yeah. Is it the idea of anchovies or do you think she legitimately doesn't like the taste of anchovies? It's
1: the idea of it. Sometimes she'll eat the pasta if I don't tell her, but yeah. I try not to lie. You know, I don't want to lie right. about it. But. That's good.
0: I and mean, the truth in, in eating. I mean, I feel like the apple, the anchovies, like, yeah. truth is important to you.
1: But she does, like, she likes, she'll often, if, sometimes she, I, we do a don't ask, don't tell. Mm. I'm like, what What that some? mean? I'm like, you want some pasta? And she'll say, yeah, sure. And she won't ask what's in it. and I won't tell her. Or I'll, oh, I'll tell her part of the ingredients. I'll be like, you know, tomato, garlic. 50 million eggs. is not. <laughs>
0: Wait, how old is she? <laughs> 11. Does she have any sense, though? That, yeah,
1: that you're, uh... she has to. She's with a kid.
0: That you are, but you're, like, a, a, a celebrated cookbook author? Oh, yeah,
1: because her teachers say stuff.
0: Oh, okay. Her
1: teachers are like, oh, yeah, tell your mom I made her this. <laughs> and Delia's proud of it. Well,
0: I feel like you have the perfect kind of celebrity where it's, like, people who know you are the kind of people, you know, it's like you're not getting, like, mobbed in malls. When oh, you, like, God, but, no. like, But people who are fans, like, really appreciate what you do. That's
1: the best like, thing is when people come up to me on the street and they say, you made me eat an anchovy, and I'm so grateful. <laughs> That's, like, my favorite. I'm like, oh, yay.
0: Okay. Do you have a recipe that, you know, you want to be your legacy, like The recipe that, you know, if you had one thing that could live on for generations, that you'd want it to be?
1: Well, I mean, like I said, the only thing I really invented was displayed chicken. So, and it's a good way to roast a chicken.
0: Okay, so the chicken. I think
1: the chicken has to be um, just because it is really like the authentic, like the thing that, I mean, like I said, someone's probably done it before, but I don't know of it. And I definitely was the first person to you know preach about it yeah
0: that's great i'm gonna make it when i get home (laughs) yeah it's good well melissa this was fantastic wait so what's the name of your podcast again let's tell everybody listen to it
1: it's called weeknight kitchen with Mm -hmm. melissa clark
0: weeknight kitchen with melissa clark it's available anywhere podcasts are sold anywhere
1: podcasts are (laughs) it's free (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's free on
0: podcasts all right well thank you melissa this is great